Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Before we begin today, I just wanted to plug a new book written by a fellow Duke student and good friend of mine that just came out. Written by Barbara Euripides, of whom I cannot speak more highly of, the book is called Brains Beauty Boss, The Ultimate Guide for Women in the Workplace. This new book explores the intersection between female empowerment, entrepreneurship, and career advancement. Sharing the incredible accounts of women from the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, such as the co-founder of Betches, Facebook's head of global business strategy and engagement, and Cosmopolitan.com's former editor-in-chief, this book highlights the power of unconventionality and different ways that women can reach success. The book is on Amazon now, and the link for that will be on the post for this week's episode. But if you are old school, just sit tight. The book will also soon be releasing at stores nationwide. But if you are burned out about reading history or hearing about the Qin Dynasty axle-length laws and legalism, pick up this book to learn and explore more modern ideas. Because as interesting as legalism is, Sometimes books like Barbara's are just way more practical. So pick up the book today. And again, link will be on the post for this week's episode. Now, as per the usual, be sure to check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China to be connected to this week's post. Besides the link for the book, we will have updated maps, pictures, comment threads, donate tab, etc., and remember, feel free to use the comment threads and to email me. I love talking to you all about the events, the battles, and well, even the Bears somehow making the playoffs. Let's go! And of course, cart axle regulations in the modern era. Now, where were we? Ah, yes. Last time, we explored how the Han Dynasty was roughly composed in a social and military sense. Look, the episode was much longer than the rest, but yet, and still, let's be real, 46 minutes does not do the immensely complex Han society justice. Think of that episode as more of a blueprint or a foundation of which to build off. This time, though, the winds of the northeastern steppe are blowing, and from them will come one of the most formidable foes Imperial China has faced so far. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 26, Enter the Xiongnu. The Qin Dynasty had essentially kicked the Xiongnu out of the living room and then quickly locked the front door behind them when they cleared them out of the Ordus Loop and then went on to build the first parts of the Great Wall of China. The Xiongnu were pissed, but the Qin Dynasty was gone. So now it was the Han that fell into the scopes of the Xiongnu wrath. Dynasties may change, but Imperial China is still Imperial China, and the land the Xiongnu lost? Well, it was still lost. Real quickly, though, we should step back and understand the Xiongnu. The Xiongnu is like saying the Gauls. 
it's sort of a buzzword because the tribes of the Xiongnu at times, yes, were under the same umbrella, sure, but they also each at times would do their own thing. They would fight each other. They were not a unified nation, they were not a single state, and they were not an empire. They at times, though, could band together and become a confederacy. Further adding to their decentralization is the fact that, well, they were nomadic. The tribes were not tied to cities or city-states, or even regions for that matter. So these were incredibly diverse and diffuse people who did not share the same idea of state, but at some points in history could band together with other tribes and create a confederacy. So what we know from Sima Qian, who, yes, is about to be actually alive, let's go, is that the Xiongnu were descendant of the rulers of the Xia dynasty by the name of Chunwei. Now, Sima Qian draws a distinct line, and it's very clear, and this is sort of happens with ancient Rome as well, or any real civilized versus barbarian society issue in history. Sima Qian drew a line between Huaxia people, which were the Ch imperial Chinese, to the pastoral nomads, which were the Xiongnu. And they sort of characterize it as these two groups. The world had the Huaxia, and then it had the pastoral nomads, and this is known as the Huayi distinction. Though who and where and why the Xiongnu got to where they were, became who they were, and honestly why they were the way they were culturally remains sort of a mystery to even the most modern observers. They didn't take extensive records, and everything we know about them is whenever they bumped up against the Chinese who were taking records, or based on things we find in the ground today. But it's that confederacy that I mentioned that presented the Xiongnu as a legitimate threat. Broken and divided, the tribes alone were easy to brush aside, and it's probably why they have not been much trouble yet so far in this story. However, new management was coming in. Look, as an avid sports fan, I know what good leadership can do to a fractured organization. And in another questionable analogy, the Xiongnu were about to install the Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, Theo Epstein powerful level of leadership. They were going to change it all. In 209 BC, three years before the Han Dynasty, Moldu Chanyu established himself as Chanyu of the new Xiongnu Confederation. Now, a Chanyu was essentially the title given to the supreme tribal ruler. Essentially, it's like, yes, the Khan. Although that title isn't even remotely close to being used yet, and it's not tied to the Xiongnu, so that's that. But it's sort of, yes, the leader of all the tribes. Within the Xiongnu, and below the Chanyu, were the kings of the right and the king of the left. Now, the king of the left was often the senior of the two and would literally often just hold the Xiongnu's left side under his control and, yes, was usually the heir apparent. Can you ever guess what the king of the right controlled? Yes, the right side. Now, left and right here are essentially flipped. 
we view the maps where we look north. North is up, south is down. But against the Han, the northern Xiongnu were looking south, i.e. they were looking down. So left was actually east, and right was really west. It gets confusing on some of our maps, yes, but that is the distinction. What the Confederacy was able to give the Xiongnu tribes that they used to not have was numbers, order, and common cause. Their new combined armies were, I mean, like, yeah, way bigger. It was all the armies put together. And now they had centralized leadership, so all of these armies could work in coordinated efforts. And yes, they all by default now had some sort of common cause. And when I say that these benefits to the Xiongnu were big and immediate, I mean literally. They were big and they were very immediate. Quickly after forming their new confederacy, the Xiongnu began to terrorize the northern borderlands of the Qin and, yes, later the Han. These nomadic tribes, according to ancient texts, would quote-unquote ravage what they came across, and they would engage in swift yet brutal raids. Everything that was happening was all happening at the exact right moment to maximize the chaos. Had the Qin maintained a strong control over China instead of collapsing, right as the Xiongnu created their new tribal confederacy, the Xiongnu would have faced a ready and formidable defense. Instead, this new mega-confederation comes into the story as civil war and chaos gripped China. The pickings, well, the pickings could not be easier. And by 200 BC, after the Han had clearly established themselves as the next dynasty of China, the Han looked north and realized that this problem was not going to go away, and it had to be dealt with. In fact, it was so crucial and daunting that Emperor Gao himself saw to it that he would lead the force against the Xiongnu after the tribal confederation had sieged a semi-major strong point. He said, look, okay, this has to stop. And so with that, Emperor Gao led a large Han army north to crush the Xiongnu, and oh my, that, that did not go to plan. According to the Book of Han, Emperor Gao was, quote, surrounded at Pingcheng and put in great danger, end quote, by the Xiongnu. One of the prominent Han leaders, Taizong, quote, was forced to submit to the humiliation of presenting tribute, end quote. The early conflicts between the Xiongnu and the Han dynasty military were consistently in favor of the Xiongnu. The first major conflict is described by Sima Qian himself in the records of the Grand Historian, where he remarked, quote, The Xiongnu once more massed their forces in the northeast of Lofan. The Han Emperor dispatched his general of chariot and cavalry to attack the Xiongnu. Because the Xiongnu constantly retreated in flight, the Han forces were able to follow up their perceived advantage and pursue them north into the steppe. Hearing that Mo Tun, well, the Xiongnu commander, was in the Tai Valley, the emperor, Emperor Gao, 
who was staying in Qingyang, sent scouts to spy on him. The scouts returned and reported that Moutun could be attacked, whereupon the emperor advanced. End quote. The Xiongnu cavalry, upon seeing this Han advancement, then pounced and surrounded the emperor. Yeah, boom. Scouts told Emperor Gao it was all okay, look, they're retreating. And they went to push the advantage that they felt they had. But just like that, the Xiongnu had the bulk of the Han army and the emperor himself encircled. Emperor Gao sent envoys filled with gifts to the leader of the Xiongnu, but one envoy sent a message to one of the leader's consorts that read, quote, Even if you were now to get possession of Han lands, you could not occupy them. It is better that the rulers of two nations not bother each other. End quote. This situation in the Han histories is made to look bad. But in reality, it was probably even worse. The bulk of the army and the emperor himself, who had just established themselves as the new dynasty, were dead if the Xiongnu wanted them to be. Everything could have ended right then and right there. Look, the calm response, though, by Emperor Gao, given the circumstances, did work. The Xiongnu realistically couldn't take over all of China, let alone even a small fraction, and ever hope to hold it. And now, this deal would work out for both sides. Sort of. The Xiongnu got more land, got tribute, more authority, and the Han? Well, the Han dynasty was allowed to continue. Furthermore, Emperor Gao married off a princess to Modu Chanyu. This was on paper, a peaceful and maybe even productive armistice. But the Han would continue on with their tail between their legs as the Xiongnu pretty much disregarded the bulk of the terms, i.e. they kept raiding, and this time with seeming impunity. This conflict and subsequent result demonstrated very clearly the early setbacks of the Han dynasty and Emperor Gao. It showed their unwillingness to beat the Xiongnu. Maybe they were afraid, maybe they weren't up to it, maybe they weren't ready. And instead, though, they wanted to avoid conflict at all costs. The Xiongnu at this moment simply were too much for the Han. The way the steppe nomads fought made the early battles hard for the Han dynasty to succeed. The Xiongnu were expert horsemen, and their military was comprised almost entirely of fast and effective cavalry. They could outmaneuver the Han's much slower chariot fighters and infantry units, as well as simply outclass the then smaller and less experienced Han cavalry. Furthermore, the tactics the Xiongnu used made them incredibly hard to defeat decisively in the open field. They could use the vast land of the steppe to fall back into whenever they were looking at defeat. Moreover, the tactic of faking their own route proved to be incredibly effective against the Han. 
And yeah, that's the tactic they use to surround Emperor Gao. In ancient warfare, and I might have mentioned this already, the vast majority of deaths did not actually occur during the head-to-head battle. But instead, most of these deaths occurred when one side would rout in panic and flee, and the other side would hunt them down as they were disorganized with their backs turned. What the Xiongnu would do, as they did in the battle described by Sima Qian, is goat the Han forces into believing they were routing, only to draw the then pursuing Han forces farther and farther out until the Han were ultimately in a trap and ambushed. However, Emperor Gao's proclamation to have both the Han and Xiongnu avoid contact with each other held, albeit in the grand scheme of Father Time, only for a short bit. The two nations avoided outright war for several decades, even though the Xiongnu, yes, would engage in raids and, yeah, occasional massacres on Han territories. In layman's terms, the Han dynasty were forced to sit there and take the pokes in the eye over and over and over again. As you can imagine, eventually, there would be a moment where the Xiongnu eventually wore down the Han patience. And mixed with growing Han capabilities, war would indeed commence again. But not now. We know from last week that the Han would eventually field a massive cavalry-based army, and that army's time in the sun is fast approaching. But imagine a slightly longer bubbling of the Germans to the perceived wrongs of the Versailles Treaty. The Han Dynasty couldn't just take this sitting down for that long. But it would not be Emperor Gao that would see this through. Because in 196 or 195 BC, Emperor Gao, the common-born emperor that started the Han Dynasty, died. Now, it is the cause of this death that raises more issues the Han Dynasty faced. Within five years of the humiliation at the hands of the Xiongnu, Han vassal kings were beginning to rebel at a very concerning rate. Yeah, I know. You thought the Xiongnu issues were enough to fill our brains and the Han Dynasty's problem docket. But yes, the Han were really not rock solid at the start. Which honestly isn't surprising. The warring states led to the quick and impactful Qin dynasty. And then they fell, and then civil war, and then the Xiongnu. War, social upheaval, and constant dynastic changes don't just go away because we know the Han lasted for a very long time. They very often almost did not continue past Emperor Gao. And so that brings us to Ying Bu, Y-I-N-G-B-U. Ying Bu had revolted himself against the Qin, but during the year 196 BC, he was himself pitted against the Han Dynasty after the Marquis of Huaiyin had been executed by orders sent from the Empress. Oh, and also, Yin Bu's favorite concubine was having an affair with another powerful warlord, 
Yin Bu and that warlord, well, they have a bloody spat. But the powerful warlord, a man named Ben He, eventually is named a general by Emperor Gao. And long story short, seeing the guy that got his favorite concubine, Ying Bu rebels. Adding more fuel to the fire was indeed the bent-over-backwards approach Emperor Gao displayed in dealing with the Xiongnu. Though it's not, as we know, like he had a whole lot of options. He was completely surrounded. Regardless, before Ying Bu rebelled, he told his men, quote, The emperor is old and hates going to war. He'll definitely not come. End quote. But Emperor Gao actually did show up to the field, and by now, Ying Bu was in too deep. And at this point, might as well go the full nine yards and commit to this rebellion. Why did he even rebel? Well, yeah, personal issues started it, but after armies were raised and there was now something to fight for, I mean, hey, if he wins, now what? He told Emperor Gao that he now was rebelling because he wanted to become emperor himself. Yeah, well, might as well go for broke now. So with the stakes raised, Emperor Gao launched an attack across the Huai River at Jue and defeated Ying Bu. Easy. But it's the fact that he took a stray arrow in the process that would change the Han Dynasty forever. Because Emperor Gao was struck by a stray arrow, and he would never recover from his wounds. Yin Bu was not the first Han king to revolt, and he was not the last. In just a few decades from where we are now in this story, 196 BC, revolting kings being an issue would reach its zenith, and the Han would have to deal with them once and for all. Oh, and by 141 BC, Emperor Wu of Han assumed power, and according to the Book of Han, quote, was indignant about this catering to the Xiongnu, and he, quote, thought deeply to work out long-term strategies to rid the Han of the threat that the Xiongnu held. Revolting kings and raiding barbarians are now plagues the Han dynasty hasn't shaken off yet. And things aren't really getting any better. But those are stories for next week. Next week, revolting kings and raiding barbarians come to the forefront. Spoiler, the Han deal with the former pretty quickly. But it's while dealing with the latter that history is given one of its greatest conflicts. Oh, and of course, new emperors. Remember to check out Brains Beauty Bossed and to see the website for more. Have a happy new year, and thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you all next week on the History of China. <laughs>